The following audio is from Solid Rock Community Church. More information about Solid Rock Community Church is available at www.solidrockcommunitychurch.com. Well, I hope everyone also, like, I hope you had a, a fantastic Christmas. Um, I had what I'd describe as, you know, a pretty normal Christmas. We did the you know, gifts and the stuff, and we were together as a family, and that was awesome. Um, I was especially glad because um, maybe it's just unique to my situation, but I found the older I get, like, the less I like receiving gifts and the more I just like giving gifts to people. If I could have it, because for me, the, the difficulty with receiving gifts, and I'm, I'm sure some people in here can relate, is I'm not a very, like, emotionally demonstrative person, so I never feel like I'm quite getting to the level I need to be in, in gratefulness, so, like, <laughs> I'll open a gift and, like, oh, this is awesome. It's like, my parents are just like, it's just socks, Nolan, like, settle down, it's not that big of a deal. Um, but it's, it's easy to give gifts and, you know, you see how people respond and um, to me that's, that's, that's the best part of um, the festivities themselves. And I always, maybe just, I'm, I'm kind of too competitive as a person as well when, and it's probably unique to my situation as a single um, adult male who doesn't, you know, I don't have any kids, so normally, like if you're an adult, I feel like most of the time you're worried about buying gifts for the kids, but in my situation I'm just buying gifts for other adults and other adults are buying gifts for me, which means that inevitably for me, it becomes some level of a competition. I'm always keeping track of my head. I'm like, who's going to buy the gifts, best gifts this year? Like, who's bringing the most creative, the best gifts to the table? And, like, I don't communicate this to anyone, but I'm always, like, keeping track of my head, and my goal is always to win Christmas in that way. Um, and I won this year. So <laughs> I, I lost last year badly, and I'm like, I've got to... I think my sister had something really awesome for my mom. I'm like, that's a great gift. Dang it, Kara. That is awesome. So I'm like, I've got to step up my game this year, make sure I, I bring it, really bring it to, uh, to the level that I need to. And thankfully I did. So um, <laughs> now, leading to what we're actually going to talk about today, uh, have, you ever, uh, have you ever been in a situation, inevitably, I know everyone has, where you've just been like openly judged by a friend? Similar to how some of you may be judging me right now for something that's, that's just not important and stupid. For example, um, you all know Alex back there, right? Alex waving his hand. Yeah, Alex is great. Alex is fantastic. But whenever Alex and I and other people who are part of the youth ministry have shared quite a few different meals at Red Robin over the past nine months, and Alex orders the same thing every time, and I judge him harshly every time. He orders... Uh, the Keep It Simple Burger, where all it is is the patty and the bun. That's it. And he gets a second patty with it, and it just it cracks me up every time. And every time it happens, like I take a picture of it, and I send a snap to a bunch of different people who may not be there to observe, but it always makes us laugh. Um, but the same thing like happens to me. I, for, I don't know how it got to be this way, but the way people judge pineapple on pizza... I love pineapple on pizza. I think it's fantastic. Um, but people hate, yeah, Alex is giving me the thumbs down right now. People hate pineapple on pizza for some reason. I don't get it. When I lived with a, with a bunch of other guys directly after college, whenever I ordered a pizza, I'd intentionally order pineapple, olive, and mushroom because I love all of those things. But inevitably, every, every other person that lives hates at least one of those toppings. So I know nobody's going to ask for a slice. And that was the whole intention. Like, there are other pizzas that I like more I'm like, I know if I order this pizza, no one's going to ask for a slice. Because um, I don't know what it is about pizza. Like, with your group of guys, like, 
everyone feels entitled to what you're ordering. Like if I brought, brought a burger home, people aren't gonna be like, hey, cut me off an eighth of that burger. <laughs> like it's only pizza, like, hey, I, you, you bought this, so I deserve some of it. Um, just once in my life, like I want to order somewhere with a group of people. Like I want a pizza with pineapple and a well-done steak and just see people's heads explode. It's like, you can't, you can't do that. It's not allowed. You're going to rip a hole in the universe just by ordering that. But, you know, we, naturally, like, that's, that's in jest and fun when you have those sort of conversations with people. Alex can order whatever he wants at Red Robin, whatever he enjoys. It doesn't matter to me, even if his order is terrible. Um, <laughs> but, unfortunately, I'm sure we've all been in situations where you've been judged in a legalistic way or you've experienced somebody else being judged in a legalistic way. That something that you've done or, some, or a situation where you've seen somebody has done something that doesn't conform to someone's preconceived standards of, of righteousness, where you've seen legalism in action, where someone doesn't speak or dress or vote the right way and instantly they're, they're judged by the other person quite vocally in certain situations. Unfortunately, if, you, if you've been a part of the Capital C Church for a long enough time, inevitably you kind of see this attitude in people, that the point of being a Christian is you know, this, this legalism where you're acceptable to God because of what you do and you're better than other people because of those things as well. I, I had a close friend of mine that I went to school with, um, and one of the summers, uh, I believe between like his, his sophomore and junior year, he, he just spent the summer at home, um, and he spent most of the summer just, you know, hanging out with family and in uh, working out. He lost like 30, 40 pounds over the summer. Like it was really, he came back the next year and he looked like a completely different person. It was incredible. Um, but one of the first conversations that he had with someone when he got back in Neville, the conversation was, what did you do over the summer? Um, the other person, you know, talked about how they, you know, went on a couple different missions trips and spent their summer that way. And then my friend described, you know, I was mainly just at home, you know, hanging out, doing my thing. Um, and the other person vocally instantly judged him for not doing missions work over his summer. And I, I was flabbergasted when I heard the story. I'm like, I, for, I, I, more than anything else, I was just surprised they vocalized it so, so harshly. But you know that inevitably you're going to encounter people that think that way. Like, because you didn't live up to their standards of what it means to be a Christian or what it means to follow Christ, that you didn't live up to their standards of righteousness that they instantly you know, judge in a legalistic way. And there's a difference between um, confronting someone out of love for some way that you think that they've gone astray, but you can tell when someone is speaking out of pride. You can tell when someone is speaking in a way um, where it's obvious to them that they are better and they enjoy being better. And it's amazing to me how often we see this happen to Jesus, where people only openly legalistically judge Jesus in that way. So let's turn to uh, Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but, why, and, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, 
and the tear is worse than before. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the old wine, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. I love those. We get two little parables there at the end that, for the longest time, kind of eluded me in their meaning, and we'll get to that there in a second. But man, you could just you can hear almost the judgment of verse eighteen. But why don't your disciples fast? You know, at this time and place, uh, the Pharisees would fast regularly twice a week. This was a, a regular part of their, of their religious regimen, as it were, which is strange because there doesn't seem to be any teaching in the Old Testament about fasting with this sort of regularity. Um, the only time that a fast is mandated in the Old Testament is in preparation for Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, um, where the, the people of Israel fast in preparation for what is the holiest day of the year, um, when, all the, when sacrifices are made for all the unconfessed sins of Israel. Um, but we see from, by the minor prophets um, at that particular time before the intertestamental, intertestamental period and before Jesus comes, that Israel at that point had been celebrating five national fasts. But the idea of regularly fasting twice a week was something that didn't come directly from Scripture. But whenever we see fasting mentioning in the Old Testament outside of, of particularly for Yom Kippur or any, or any national fast, it comes spontaneously as um, a demonstration of mourning or of repentance, or of a need of time of intense prayer, or all three combined in certain situations. But we are at a time when uh, the, the Pharisees, out of an attitude, I, I would say an overcorrection, out of desire, that they came out of, of centuries of rabbinical teaching that we need to do whatever we can to avoid going back into exile. We need to do whatever we can to avoid being judged by God the way that we, we have in the past. So they would add extra restrictions and extra laws upon God's commands. And we, we've talked about this previously in Mark. This is a repeated theme that happens over and over in the Gospels in the way that Jesus has, has confrontations with the Pharisees over issues like this. So you know that at this point, the Pharisees fasted twice a week, and we could see that practice and the attitude um, that's reflected in, in Luke 18, I'm reading, starting in verse 9. He also told this, far, this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like other men. This passage is unbelievable. I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, I am a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we can see it was a regular practice for, for the Pharisees and the religious elite to fast twice a week as part of this regimen by which they attained favor with God and, of course, were better than the people around them as well. And it's likely that the, the disciples of John fasted as well because John was a man that led a very aesthetic lifestyle. And not only that, but this was probably a period of time where John was in prison as well. It makes sense that his, his, uh, his disciples would be fasting for that purpose, probably in prayer, um, praying over their, their master who was currently incarcerated. Um, but Jesus sets the record straight. Looking back at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Um, Jesus uses this analogy a lot through the Gospels, the idea of him being the bridegroom. Um, And of course, that's played out ultimately, as as we see in Paul's writing, is that the church is the bride. Um, But it's used very often in regards to teaching. Um, Specifically, we we think of the passage about um, you need to to have oil prepared for, for the coming of the bridegroom in the night. Um, and it's, we have examples of this littered all throughout the Gospels. Um, in this case, the, you know, the disciples would be the equivalent of groomsmen. And if we understand fasting to be the, uh, the practice that we see all throughout the Old Testament as most of the time a spontaneous response to a need for mourning or repentance or a time of, of intense prayer over a specific need, that none of those things match where the disciples are in this particular time in their lives. You know, there's, there's no need for mourning. It, in, the, in the same way that, similar to the, the, the practice that's going, that Jesus is alluding to in regards to um, a Jewish wedding process, that the groomsman would spend time with the bridegroom before that he would go get his bride. It was a time of, of preparation and expectation and excitement. You know, a time of mourning wouldn't be applicable for, for the, the disciples in this particular time because it is all about training. It's about expectation. It's about a time of, of communion and joy. In the same way, there would be no t- need for intense prayer or a specific request. God Almighty is with them in their midst. So it doesn't match their, this particular setting in their lives. It doesn't make sense, which, of course, stands in the face of, of so much of legalism, which is about keeping the form of obedience in spite of the reason that we do certain things, right? That we read the Bible simply because we're supposed to read it, rather than learning about a God that we're supposed to know and love. That we you know, keep a careful count of the minutes that we spent in prayer, rather than actually attempting to grow in relationship with this God who has loved us and given himself up for us. That we, we keep a careful record of the things that we do, rather than thinking about why exactly we do them, or understanding that our relationship isn't one of of a catalog of righteous deeds, but instead is one of a relationship, that the point of us as believers, as followers of Jesus, is knowing and loving God, and the Holy Spirit building in us a character that instead leads to obedience. And we know that later on, the, the disciples do fast. As apostles, we see multiple times in Acts when, whether they're commissioning to send out Paul or in other situations where a time is called for a need for intense prayer, they definitely do go to fasting because it's appropriate to the situation. The point isn't proving righteousness to themselves or proving righteousness to others. The point is, is that this is an, a necessary tool at this particular time for us to know and love God and to determine his will in our lives, as it is for us today. Fasting is... a a tremendous tool for us in aid for prayer. And it doesn't necessarily have to be food. You know, I, I found for me the most productive, some of the most productive periods of fasting in my life is when I give up you know, other distractions that keep me from the gospel. Um, food is especially helpful because if we think of as fasting as a, a reminder to pray, pray over something specific or something to spend time in prayer, when you don't eat for a while, hunger doesn't go away. That reminder is pretty constant. Um, but there have been other times in my life where I've, you know, given up electronic entertainment or different things that serve as a distraction. Um, and for all of us that, you know, I, I fall into this trap as well. It's like, I definitely want to spend time with the Lord, but I just seem like I'm too busy. I just don't have the time. Well, this is a great way to make the time. 
is take away that whatever that, that the thing in our, in our lives that is distracting us from time spent with the Lord or things that wouldn't even be commonly thought of distractions as time spent with the Lord. For example, eating. We all make time to eat during the day. We take that out for a day or two or three. We have some time to spend with the Lord as we need to. Now let's get into these, uh, these fun little, little parables that Jesus uses here. Starting in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus is bringing a new message a new gospel, a new understanding of the kingdom of God in multiple ways. The first way is, is the way that we see re- reflected in this passage, the continuous uh, conflict that occurs between Jesus and the Pharisees over ways in which they've added restrictions to the kingdom of God for, for a legalistic purpose. We see it in this passage. We see it in the next passage in regards to the Sabbath. We see it all throughout the Gospels um, where Jesus is, is teaching, no, my kingdom isn't made up of this attitude or reflected in this specific action. It's made up of knowing and loving God. But he also brings a new message and a new gospel in the way that he brings a new covenant for us as well. The idea that not only do the Pharisees, the religious lead of the day, represent a legalistic mindset of knowing God, but they represent an old covenant that upon that foundation we get the new covenant that we live under today. That as followers of Jesus, we no longer um, live under the covenant that was given to Israel at Sinai. A covenant that composed, was composed of 613 commands. That was given for the purpose of, um, of identifying Israel as God's chosen people. And the hallmark of it was obedience to these commands. And if you failed to obey, there was a sacrificial system in place by which you could achieve atonement. That you worship in specific places, in in very specific ways, usually in the form of sacrifice. Where you worship at at the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem. This idea of of this old covenant being an old wineskin or an old piece of cloth a thing that served a purpose for a particular time, but now we're going into a new time, a new way, a growth upon the way, the old way of knowing God. And in contrast to, you know, 613 commands, we have two. And they're very simple, and they relate, and they're impossible. Well, I would say it's the point of them isn't that they are categorized in daily action, point is, is our devotion, that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's really hard to keep track in our daily lives, like, my action in this way reflects this, my action in this way. No, it's a characteristic of the heart that ends up in action. It begins with the Holy Spirit building in us character and changing us from who we are into someone that's more like Jesus, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And that we don't correspond to a sacrificial system where the blood of bulls and goats takes away sin, but instead, one sacrifice has been made for all time. 
that were purchased with the blood of Jesus. And a covenant, I'd say the simplest way that we we could say what is the purpose of, of Jesus on earth is to bring about a new covenant. The Bible itself is nothing but a book of covenants. The idea of a sacred agreement between two parties. The covenants that God makes with man. You know, originally with, with Adam and Eve, and then with Noah, and then with Abraham, and then with David, and then finally the final perfect covenant that's made between Jesus and his church. Now, testament is nothing but another word for covenant. And Jesus' life is about the new covenant. He teaches. The purpose of his teaching is to give a, a, the right understanding of what it means to live under a new covenant. His life reflects what that life would look like under this new covenant. And then finally, he inaugurates this covenant. He, he begins this covenant at, um, at communion, where he, uh, he puts forth the, the cup that would, in, in a traditional Jewish wedding process, um, if a bridegroom you know, is going to a father and, and wants to marry a specific bride, they agree to a contract and they agree to a bride price, and then it's sealed by the bride who comes out and drinks from the cup. And that drinking from the cup seals the marriage contract in that moment, and they are considered betrothed. And the bridegroom stands up and says, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he leaves. And we see step by step of that wedding process is that Jesus is creating a covenant with us as his church. That he gives us a cup at communion, this is the cup of the covenant, the blood of the covenant that's spilt for you, and you're to do this in remembrance of me. And he pays the bride price for us, his very blood. And the sign of the covenant that's given to us is his spirit. And we live out this new covenant that is based not in a temple or commands or priests, but it's based on the fact that worship happens everywhere and occurs in spirit and in truth is based in love for one another and love for God. And it only happens because of the power of the Holy Spirit, which is given to all of us as believers. And this is where I make the transition to the new year, in a, in a ham-handed way. <laughs> you know, the, the fact that it's, we're coming up on a new year, the, it's, 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 it's an arbitrary distinction that it's the new year in, in two days. Um, but nevertheless, it comes with you know a sense of newness, right? We're going into an even though there's really there's no real new period. It, it feels like a new period when we enter a new year. Um, and in that spirit, it, it prevents. It often does for believers, and it should. It presents an opportunity to to evaluate our lives as followers of Jesus. How much of our attitudes are reflected? In, in the attitudes of the Pharisees. How much of how I live out my life as a follower of Jesus is because I think it's supposed to be this way rather than as a love for God. That new covenant that we live under is entirely based in, in, um, in a life of power, in a radical commitment. And if there are parts of my life where Following God has become easy, irregular, mundane, or boring. That's not the life that we're called to as, as followers of Jesus. We're called to a life that is, is radical, a commitment that is radical.
um, and the one that's reflected in the Spirit's power. So I, that would be my, my challenge as we, as we go into a new year, is to, for all of us to evaluate each area of our lives and how, we, um, how we're living out our, our calling as followers of Jesus. You know, is every part of my life, is it a reflection of those commands to know and love God and to love others? Is it a reflection of God's spirit and power? Am I truly living out the ideas of the new covenant rather than the old? If you could stand with me as we pray. Lord, we praise you. We just thank you that we get to know you. Maybe we get to experience you and your power and your love. Help us to understand the best that we can, who you are and what you've done for us. That as we go into this, this new year, Father, we, could, we can know and love you at a level that we never have before. And for those of us that, that may not know you here today, Father, I ask that you, that you show them your truth and your power. That you show them the ebbiness of living life without you. And show them that we are all created very, very intentional first purpose is to know you and to experience you. And we can do so through your son and because of what your son has done for us. Again, we praise you, Father. We thank you. And we ask these things to your son's holy name. Amen. All right. Thanks so much for being here today. I appreciate you staying the entire time while I talked. Uh, let's go Hawks, right? Have a great day.